If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians there in the New Testament, so the back quarter of your Bible, and probably about halfway through that back quarter of the Bible, um, you'll find the book of Ephesians, and we're right in the middle in chapter 4. We saw last week that the key command that opens this second half of the book is found in the first verse of chapter 4. Paul tells us to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It is an exhortation to the people of God to live lives that are of equal weight to the calling that God has given his people, a call to unity and holiness. Here in verses 1 through 16, Paul's focus is on the unity that we are called to. We looked already at at verses 1 through 6 where God's word shows us the kind of heart attitudes that, that promote unity amongst God's people as well as the theological truths that that hold us together. And yet, if, if, we're going to, if we're going to walk worthy of this call to unity, we're going to need more help. <laughs> because this calling is not simply to be unified, but it's actually to, to grow and mature as God's church. In other words, our goal is not just to get along and to be at peace with each other. Sometimes that feels like a win, but, but that's not all that we're supposed to do. Paul shows us that there is a mission that we are on together, and we as, as God's diverse people are to be working in, in unity on this mission so that the glory of God might be displayed in the love that we have for one another and in our proclamation of the gospel as the only means of reconciling us to God and to each other. That call can be a little bit overwhelming, but but what if... What if an aspect of our diversity was in fact a means not of separating us, but one of the key tools that was used to unite us? What if our differences are in fact one of our secret strengths? When you start to think about diversity as a strength, it's easy to come up with illustrations, especially from books and movies. So we might think about how each member of the Fellowship of the Ring had something that they contributed to the journey so that it was successful. Or you might think, maybe you've read about the Baudelaire children who each possessed a specific skill that helped them to escape from the series of unfortunate events that they encountered. Or maybe how all of the Avengers worked together, each using their powers, uh, different powers to, to save the world. Or how all of the the toys in the Toy Story movie had to use their skills to to save Andy's toys, even the smallest of them. But is this strength and diversity, is that just the stuff of, of fiction? It's really easy to come up with books and movies where people come together and find strength and diversity and are able to help one another because of their different giftings, but does it happen in real life? Well, Paul shows us that that the church actually can be a place where a diverse group of people united in Christ and in, and in love can glorify God. And we can do that because of this, because God has given his church gifts so that we are able to grow in unity and love. That's going to be our big idea for today. God has given his church gifts. God has given his church gifts. Why? So that we are able to grow in unity and love. 
Uh, Bow in his commentary has a, a slightly more thorough big idea. He writes this, Christ's gifting of the church in his triumph was to bring about unifying, truth-telling lives of edification and love. I like that, but we're going to stick with my simpler one, <laughs> which is God has given his church gifts. Why? So that we are able to grow in unity and love. And my hope as, as we look at these verses is that we as a church will be filled with confidence and with clarity. Confidence that God has equipped us to do what he is asking us to do. And, and clarity about just exactly what he is asking us to do as his people. That we would understand that walking worthy of our, our calling to unity happens because God has given gifts to his church and that these gifts lead the church to grow in deeper unity and love. God has given his church gifts so that we are able to grow in unity and love. Let's look at our passage then with that in mind. It's in verses 7 through 16. Uh, and as we look there, notice in verse 7 what the first word is. The first word is but, meaning that Paul is, is drawing a, a contrast. So I actually want to begin back in verse 1 so that we can see what he's drawing a contrast Two, um, so Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse one, and we'll read through verse sixteen. Paul writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, "I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The, the contrast between verses 4 through 6 and verse 7 is found in the words one, repeated seven times in verses 4 through 6, and then this idea of each one that's found in verse 7. The focus of verses 4 through 6 was on the, the one doctrines that, that hold us together. And, and now there's a move to the diversity of gifts that are given to each individual who is a part 
of the body of Christ. But this move from the, the one to the many isn't really surprising because unity assumes diversity in some way. As I think about that, the image that comes to my mind is of a, a house that's been built out of Legos. And not like a, a set of Legos, but just that pile of Legos that you have, all different colors, all different shapes, and you come up with your own house that you throw together. And it's made up of all these different various shapes and sizes and, and colors, and they're all put together. But they're, they're diverse pieces, but they form one house. So maybe you can have that picture in mind. But better than that illustration, uh, think about how all of Paul's illustrations of the church have um, in them the idea of different elements that together make a whole or a unit. The church is one nation with many people. The church is one body with many parts. The church is one temple with many stones. The church is one family with many members. Even the list of seven, seven one doctrines is, is structured around the Trinity, reminding us that, that we worship one God in three persons. Therefore, our, our unity in the midst of diversity, including the diversity of gifting and roles in the body that we're going to talk about, that, that reflects the very nature of the God that we worship and proclaim. Isn't that an amazing thing? Our unity in diversity reflects the, the Trinity. So we see this connection then to the verses before. And, and with that in mind, let's move into a, a truth found in verses 7 through 11, and it's this. Christ graciously gives gifts to his church. That's what we're going to think about uh, for the majority of our time here in verses 7 through 11. Christ graciously gives gifts to his church. And as we look at that, we're going to think on the recipients of these gifts, we're going to think about the source of these gifts, and we're going to think about the substance of these gifts, okay? So first, regarding this gracious giving of gifts, notice briefly the recipients of Christ's gifts. Uh, you see that there in, in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And simply put, who receives gifts? Every member of Christ's family gets a gift, we have some gifts for the fathers, as I mentioned. And everyone who's a father gets a gift. Uh, we're, we're not going to exclude someone from getting that gift. And so to everyone who is a member of God's family is gifted for ministry. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God's grace not only saves us, but it also equips us by giving us gifts to use within the church. Maybe you haven't thought about that for a while, or maybe you've never heard that before. But know that if you are a spirit-indwelt follower of Jesus Christ, then you've been given a gift by God as a member of his church so that you can minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ. God is empowering all of his people to bless his church and to glorify him in this world. And he has gifted each of us in different ways so that we together can do just that. You have been given a gift by God for the building up of this body. We'll notice next, not only the recipients of the gifts, but the source of these gifts. The source of these gifts. In other words, where are they coming from? And in one sense, we've already answered that, haven't we? They come from Jesus. Christ is the one who, who gives these gifts, so he is their source. Verse 7 reminds us that they flow from his grace 
and that they are also according to the measure that he chooses. Well, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, the unity of the church, as we've seen, assumes that all who trust in Christ are equal heirs of salvation. But regarding these gifts, it seems that while everyone receives, uh, that, that, that not everyone receives the, the same gifts, nor does everyone even receive the, the same amount of gifts or even gifts of the same influence within the church. Everyone is given the, the Spirit, and everyone is enabled by the Spirit to serve the church in unique ways, but some are gifted to strengthen the body of Christ in ways that, that seem to bear more weight or maybe have more influence. I'm hesitant to say that some gifts are, are more important. In fact, Paul speaks against this idea, it seems, in 1 Corinthians 12, and yet he also talks about higher gifts in that chapter. So there's a balance here. There's this balance that every part of the body is needed, but also that some gifts that are given within the church are, are more influential. If the goal, though, of course, is the building up of the body, then that doesn't make us jealous of these gifts. Our, our goal is the glory of Christ and the building up of the church. And so we trust him to, to distribute the gifts as he chooses, according to, it says here, uh, according to the measure of his gifts. Uh, as we continue to think about the source of these gifts, though, Paul is at pains not simply to say that they're from Christ, but that they flow from the triumph of Christ, specifically the ascension of Jesus. Really interesting how much space Paul uses to talk about this. Verses 8, 9, and 10 uh, quote and then explain the significance of Psalm 68 and the implications of, of Christ's conquest that's seen in the distribu distribution of the, the gifts to his church, but we've got some questions that we've got to deal with in these verses. There's two main questions we've got to figure out. Uh, the first one is, why does Paul seem to misquote Psalm 68? Because he does seem to misquote Psalm 68. Uh, and second, what does it mean that Christ descended? There's been a lot of ink spilled on seeking to answer these questions over the centuries, and so I'm going to do my best to just summarize what I've read, uh, to explain what I think has been helpful, and then we're going to strive just to see the importance of these verses in what Paul is saying about how the, the gifts that Christ has given the church help us to, to grow in unity and in love. So the first question is, why does Paul seem to misquote Psalm 68:18? That seems like kind of a big deal, doesn't it, that that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would misquote Psalm 68. He says, he's applying these words to Jesus, and he says that when he ascended, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Notice that he gave gifts to men. But if you, if you go back and you read Psalm 68, 18, the psalmist says that God the conqueror received gifts from men. Now, I don't know, if I asked you what's the opposite of give, what would you say? Receive. So Paul seems to be really changing the meaning of, of this verse. Uh, however, and you heard the entire psalm read earlier uh, by Joshua, it, it would appear that while he seems to change that one individual verse, that he actually, in changing that one verse, captures the meaning of the psalm as a whole. So it could be, in fact, that, that Paul's not trying to just reference one verse, but actually he's trying to reference the entirety of Psalm 68. 
That wouldn't be surprising. This is what Jesus does when he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. Jesus is not just referencing that verse, but he's referencing that, that whole psalm for us to consider. And Psalm 68 describes God's deliverance of his people through conquering his enemies. The, the conquering of enemies uh, assumes taking up the spoils of war. When you conquer another nation, you get all their stuff. Uh, and, and these gifts are given to God, but they're, they're not kept by God. We read in the psalm that, that the women are dividing up the plunder. And then even the last verse of the psalm, it says that God of God, that he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. So how do we reconcile this? Well, did God receive gifts in conquering his enemies? Yes, he did. But then, as all conquering kings would do, he also then distributes those gifts to the members of his kingdom. And so Paul connects this triumphant song to Jesus, and he says that in his victory over sin and, and death and Satan, he has been given gifts, and that he then gives those gifts to his people. Not gifts of silver and gold, but, but gifting for ministry to make the church rich in unity and love. It's this image of a conquering king that leads to our next question. What does Paul mean when he talks about Christ's descent? What does he mean that Christ descended? Look again at verses 9 and 10. It's sort of a parenthetical statement in saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There's a few options for what this descent of Jesus is describing. It could be speaking of the descent of Jesus to hell after his crucifixion that seems to be referenced in 1 Peter 3.19, and that's a discussion for another time. Um, uh, that seems, in fact, probably to be the least likely option. It could simply refer to Jesus' incarnation, his descent from heaven to earth, or maybe more specifically, his descent to the cross and death to be buried in the earth. It's what I'd like to call the Lord, I lift your name on high explanation. He came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. So shout out to 90s Christian contemporary music. Uh, so that would be one, another option. And then Stock gives us a, another option that sort of actually encapsulates all of this. He says that it may simply be re a reference to Christ's humiliation, that he descended, he, he humbled himself. And when I say that, you probably think of Philippians 2. And, and there, Paul is, is, includes the incarnation he includes the cross, and he also talks about the ascension. He talks about the descent and the ascent of Christ. You know these words well, but it never hurts to read Philippians 2. So here at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So there's the incarnation, his descent to earth. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He descends to the, the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
Jesus. Jesus is the one who descended in humility, who took the form of a servant, who suffered, who died, and he's also the one who has ascended into heaven. So having looked at these questions, it would seem to me that this is the point of verses 8 through 10 in particular. That the one who descended to earth and to the cross and to death itself in humiliation is the same one who has risen victorious over all of his enemies. And this Jesus, the, the conqueror that's foreshadowed in Psalm 68, this Jesus has ascended now to his throne and from his throne He's giving gifts to his people that he won in his conquering over all of his enemies. The giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost uh, points to this. And in fact, interesting to note, Psalm 68 was actually read in the synagogue on the day of Pentecost, uh, which was a day for remembering the giving of the law. Uh, That was before it was a day to remember the giving of the Spirit. Interesting that, that connection. I wonder if Paul knew that. I, probably, I have no doubt that he probably did. Um, but Pentecost, as we've said in the past, was like, the, like coronation day for Jesus. Queen Elizabeth II succeeded to the throne of England on February 6, 1952, after the death of her father, King George VI. However, she was not crowned until her coronation on June 2, 1953. Now, she was still queen during that year and five months, but her new reign was celebrated at her coronation. And you know what happened on the day of her coronation? Everybody got gifts, chocolate and tea, and some people got got money. Uh, British citizens far and and wide received gifts on the coronation day. We could say similarly on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, he was exalted as the king over death. He certainly was king from eternity past, but in another sense, the day of Pentecost was his coronation day. And what do you do on coronation day? You give gifts. And all of his children received what he was pouring out, namely the fullness of his spirit and therefore his indwelling power to do his work on earth. But we also find that along with the spirit, Paul is telling us, the the fullness of the spirit, he's also giving each and every believer gifts. The ascended, victorious, enthroned Christ is giving gifts to his church so that they can do what he asks them to do. As I think about that image, why why does Paul spend so much time making that connection? I think it's supposed to fill us with confidence and and with joy that we are to see our, our resurrected, ascended, exalted king, the one who descended in humiliation to save us, now seated in power at the right hand of the Father. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are now working in unison, as they did in salvation, to empower the church to do everything that he calls us to do. This Jesus, exalted Christ, has equipped us through his limitless power to walk worthy of our calling to unity and love. He is giving us the gifts that we need to do what he's asking us to do. I think it should fill us with confidence and with joy. So we see the recipients of these gifts, that they're from, for everyone. We see the source of these gifts. It's, it's the ascended, victorious Christ. But let's now ask, what's the substance of these gifts? 
What's the substance? Another simple way, just what are the gifts? <laughs> uh, what exactly does the victorious Christ give to his church? Now, Paul talks about spiritual gifts lots of other places. Depending on how you count them, it's, it's either five or six lists uh, of what we have come to call spiritual gifts. Uh, these gifts include things like prophecy, teaching, leadership, miracles, healings, speaking in tongues, mercy, and even faith. And even with multiple lists, there doesn't actually seem to be any indication that, that these are all of the gifts that, that God gives to his church. The key thought in, in each seems to be that God empowers his children to uniquely serve the church in a way that is beyond their natural ab ability. Now, there's obvious curiosity when we talk about these gifts because we want to know, well, what gift do I have? <laughs> you can easily find spiritual gift inventories or tests to help you discern this. However, I think one of the dangers of these spiritual gift inventories is that they can end up simply revealing where we would prefer to serve in the church or, or maybe how we think we are able to serve in the church. However, these, these gifts from the ascended Jesus are something that is unique that the Spirit empowers us to do, not that simply flows from who we are and how God has made us with our natural abilities. These gifts, uh, they could even be temporary. They could be an, an empowering for a specific moment, for a season, because that's what the body needs uh, in this moment. All, all that to say that I don't think we should be narrow-minded when we're thinking about the gifts that are given to us. It's okay to think about, well, how has the Lord gifted me? But also, uh, we probably shouldn't be dogmatic about what specific gift we have. It, it may be more helpful, in fact, to just focus on the knowledge that, that we each have received a gift from the Savior. And we, and we each are vital to the growth and the strength of the body of Christ. And so, if that's true, then we should be willing to serve in any way that's put before us and trust that God will give us the power to do it whatever it is, whatever opportunities we find within the church, whatever needs we see, that if the Spirit would prompt us to do it, he will give us the strength and the power to accomplish it. Better than any test, too, you, we, we should look around and we should note um, how God is, is using others. You don't need to take a test. You need to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and we, as, as a church, should, should look at others and and we should discern and, and tell others, you seem particularly gifted in this specific way, and I want to encourage you to keep using that gift in the church because it's helping and, and building up this body of Christ. Well, that's just spiritual gifts in general, but if you look at verse 11 in particular, the unique thing about this list of gifts, as compared to the others, is that the focus seems to be not on the gifts themselves, but in fact on the people with those gifts. So if you read it, it it's God is said to give the church not the gift of apostleship, but what does God give the church? Apostles. Uh, not the gift of prophecy, but prophets uh, and evangelists and shepherds and, and teachers. We, we also see that these gifts are focused on, on those who minister God's word and who watch over the, the church. Let's look through these five gifts. <clears throat> we might not be surprised by the mention first of apostles and prophets. This marks the, the third time that Paul has, has brought up this dynamic duo. We see them in chapter 2, verse 20. We see them in chapter 3, verse 5. And they are part of the foundation of the church. They are who the church is built upon. 
And in light of that emphasis on the, the foundational element of the apostles and prophets, I think it's probably right to think of these two gifts as unique to the early church and that they are not existent today. That, that there's no one in this room that we would say, you have the gift of apostleship or you are a prophet. Um, apostles were those who had been commissioned by Jesus himself and had actually seen the resurrected Christ. Uh, and, and the prophets spoke specific words from God. They acted as God's mouthpiece before the establishment of the scriptures. However, with the establishment of, of God's word, uh, it's in the pages of the Bible that we, found the, we find the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The, the, the apostles and prophets were therefore given to a, the church for a season as it was established. The early church was strengthened and established by their teaching, and we stand on that foundation. How? We stand on that foundation as we devote ourselves to the scriptures, to the teachings of the apostles, to the words of the prophets that are found in the pages of the Bible. Now, there are some that still want to use these terms uh, to refer to individuals, but I think it would seem wise to allow them to just remind us of the gifts that God has given his church in the years immediately following his ascension. Some think of pioneering missionaries as apostles, but I don't think that's very helpful. I think this is a New Testament term that we should let refer to the apostles. And if we really want to talk about someone having a prophetic gift, that's fine. But in the words of John Stott, it should be understood as a gift of insight into either the biblical text or the contemporary situation, or both, namely a powerful combination of accurate exposition and pertinent application. In other words, it's, it's not a gift that allows individuals to receive prophetic words on par with Scripture. Beware of that. Beware of people saying that they have a word from God that is of equal weight with God's word. I don't think that's what this prophetic, we should not think of pro that prophetic ministry, but rather if we want to talk about a prophetic ministry, we could say that it's a, a gift of understanding and applying the scriptures, but it's the scriptures that, that have been given. Or just don't talk about prophetic gifts, maybe would be easier. Uh, after these prophets and apostles, Paul says that the church is given evangelists. These are those with a unique ability to proclaim the gospel, whether in personal relationships or even in some sort of a, a formal way. Of course, we're all called to bear witness to Christ as opportunities arise, and the, the fact that God has given the church evangelists isn't an excuse for us to neglect the responsibility to share the gospel, but it can be an encouragement. It can be a comfort that there are those that are given to the church that have a unique boldness or clarity of speech or even just a, a creative mind that allows them to share the good news of the gospel with others. We might think about frontline missionaries. Some of them are just so creative in the ways that they have, uh, that they have thought through that God has gifted them to, to get the gospel um, into others. I think about uh, friends of ours who are using uh, micro SD cards to put the scriptures on them and then give them to people with recordings of, of the, the Bible in their native language so they can hear the words of Jesus spoken. I mean, I would never come up with that, but these folks are walking around handing them out to people in, in remote areas. They have a gift for that. We could also think about just people that we know who effectively speak the truth in love to their friends and their coworkers. Some of you know them, people that are just able to, to get into any conversation and to be able to share the gospel. 
It's, uh, it's something that, that is not as easy for some of us, but for some people it's just it's, it's the easiest thing in the world. And we, we should be so thankful that these men and women are given to the church. They are a gift from Jesus to the church for the building up of this body. That's evangelist. There's two more gifts mentioned uh, in this list of five, though some argue that they should be combined into one. Uh, they would say it's not, it's not pastors and teachers, but rather pastor-teachers. It could be. I, I don't know that it's worth arguing too strongly over, but it is a good reminder to those of us that are called as, as elders that we need to seek a balance between pastoring, literally shepherding, and, and teaching. Uh, we're not called simply to teach and to preach, but we're also to care for and protect the flock uh, that God has given us responsibility over, uh, though that care and protection often is tied to the word. Um, even beyond the office of an elder, we could think about how God has given the church those who love and care for and watch over the body in a, in a shepherding kind of way, as well as those who teach, whether they uh, teach in in the church, in Sunday school, or in other ways, those who teach in schools, who teach in seminaries, those who teach us through writing really good books, that's a, a gift given to the church to strengthen us in the word. Thinking about these gifts, I wonder if we might pause and, and think about these gifts within our church or even within our own lives and our histories of, of faith. Who are the evangelists? Who are the pastors who are the teachers that God has used in your life through the years that you would say that person was a gift to me, was a gift to the church that I was a part of? Maybe you can remember a Sunday school teacher who helped you understand the gospel. Or maybe a, a pastor who, who taught the word well. Or even the person who shared the gospel with you the first time. They're a gift from God to the church. Who, who has God even given to Grace Fellowship Church over the years as those who have ministered the word well to us? As the phrase goes, we stand on the shoulders of giants. You think about that. We stand on the shoulders of other people that have blessed this church. I know that. I know that the foundation of this church was solid, and I'm thankful so many times for the men and women who were an early part of this church who, who even here and now is gifted in these ways? Who's being used in our church now to build up the body through the proclamation of Scripture? Who are the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers that are a part of this church? As we think about these gifts, we're reminded of how important they are to the strengthening of the body. We can be filled with thanksgiving for those who have helped us and who are still helping us. And we might also think, we might also think about who God is raising up in these ways. Who might God be gifting as an evangelist or as a, as a pastor or as a teacher so that our church could continue to grow? Who here might be gifted and called to serve the body of Christ as a missionary or as a, as a pastor or as a teacher? And maybe something that you see God stirring in your own life and soul. There may be those in our church that we that we start to see having these, these gifts, and we need to encourage them. We need to come alongside them and help them to, to grow in these gifts, give them opportunity and encourage them. Again, this list is not exhaustive. This is a specific list, I think, for, for the Ephesians. But it's interesting to note that the focus that, that Paul has on these word-based teaching gifts 
that these men and women are, are given to the church by Jesus to ground us in the, the scriptures, to care for the flock, to, to share the gospel with others. And this is vital to our unity and our, our growth. They hold us together by holding the word of God before us. And this leads us into verses 12 through 16 where we see the purpose of Christ's gifts. Now, here's the deal. We have no time to go through this. <laughs> I realized that as I was preparing yesterday. And so I want us to come back to verses 12 through 16 next Sunday because there's so many beautiful things in here. But for now, I just want us to get, just close with the big picture for the purpose of these gifts, uh, the gifts of verse 11, and even for every gift that's given to each of us. And to do that, think about this illustration of the body that's in the background here. If you read through verses 12 through 16, I'd encourage you to read through verses 12 through 16 this week and meditate on them. But as you do that, one way that we find to explain the purpose of the gifts that is given to the church is to say that they are given to us so that we will become mature. Uh, Paul is talking about the difference between a child and a mature man. Just hold that image in your mind. Think about, think about a young child, maybe like a, a five-year-old kid and a mature man. And, and Paul is saying that these gifts help the church to grow, to not be a child that's thrown around and tossed around by the world, but rather that is a mature um, and stable man. What does it take for a human uh, to grow and to thrive and mature? There are some who say there's seven basic human needs. Air, water, food, shelter, safety, sleep, and clothing. We could even go beyond physical needs and we could list emotional and spiritual needs that allow a person to become mature. And God's word tells us that each member using their gifts is what's necessary for the body of Christ to be mature especially those gifts that ground us in the teaching and the truth of the gospel and of God's word. And so if we're going to be healthy as a church, if we're going to be stable as a church, if we're going to be a mature body of believers, then everyone has to use their gifts so that we can be built up and be strong. Just, I'm encouraged by these verses. I'm encouraged to continue to be a church that is centered on God's word and the proclamation of it. Because it's, it's the scriptures, it's the clear teaching of them, the reading of them, the studying of them, that is what allows us to mature as God's people. And not just to mature in our knowledge, but also to mature in our walk of, of unity and of love. Our minds are renewed so that we, our walk would be new. And, and the gifts that God gives us, especially these word-centric gifts of evangelists and shepherds and teachers, they lead us into Christ's likeness. They lead us into Christian maturity. So I just want to close by saying, isn't this encouraging? Isn't it encouraging that God has equipped us out of his triumphant strength to walk in ways that would glorify him? Think about what God has done. God has given his church gifts, each of us. God has given his church gifts so that we can grow in unity and in love. That's something to be thankful for. That's something to rejoice in. And it's also something to seek after, something to grow and to mature in. And so I would encourage each of us as individuals and as a church to, to think about this truth that God has given gifts to us so that we could grow in unity and in love and to ask, how am I being a part of that growth 
that's happening in God's church. In fact, let's take a moment of silence and allow God's spirit to, to speak to our hearts through his word. Um, and after a brief moment of silence, I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Father, how gracious you are. Out of the, the grace of Jesus, we have been given gifts. We've been given the gifts of people that have helped us. Evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Lord, these apostles and prophets who spoke your word so clearly for us. and The gift of having it written down for us so that we can be strong and, and stable. And Lord, you've given each of us gifts. Lord, this body of Christ, we are, we are able to grow and mature, not in our own strength, but in the strength and in the gifting that you've given us. So would you help us, Lord? Help us to know how you have gifted us. Help us to, to rest in the power that you give to us. Would you use us in, in big and in small ways to, um, to encourage one another and to build up this body? Lord, in, in all of it, would we be centered on your word? Help us to, to know the power of the scriptures and that we would call to mind often and, and teach each other and encourage one another by your word. Lord, would you build up our, our fellowship? Would you build up our, this body of believers into greater maturity and stability and do it all for your glory? I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.